entitled this morning's message, as you can tell by the outline on the back of your bulletin, Faith and Eternal Life. Between this week's message and particularly next week's, as we get into disciples, uh, we come to a very crucial text of Scripture. In our context, for those of, you, well, those of you who have been with us and you realize from reading verse 59, Jesus is in Capernaum. He's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, very close to what we know as Lebanon today. And he's near the area of the Golan Heights, not too far from that. He's continuing in a conversation with the Jews. And he's continuing with the Jews because the Jews arrived as they've been following the ministry of Jesus Christ. And they came to Capernaum themselves for two primary reasons. One, because of the miracles that he was doing, but also because of the fact that they were fed loaves and fishes. Story well known to many people. And because of that, they have gathered... And in verse 43, if you just look back there for a second, as we were noting last week, they are grumbling, they are complaining, they are murmuring, as some of your translations may have, about what the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching them. And the reasons for their murmuring, Jesus has explained to them, number one, who he is. And I mentioned last week, if you want to really get grumbling in people, one of the things you do is explain truly who Jesus Christ is. Not what the world thinks of Jesus Christ, but the minute, minute you start talking about who Jesus Christ really is, it stirs people up, and they don't like what they hear. But Jesus has told them two specific things. If you look to verse 41, just in scanning it, you'll see that he said he was the one who came down from heaven. None of us can claim that. We can only claim birth through a natural means through our parents. But the Lord Jesus Christ left his abode. He left his glory with the Father, as we will see later on in the book, particularly in chapter 17 of the book. But he did come down from heaven, and he came down because God loved us. He came down because God does indeed care about us. And he specifically came, verse 35, because he claimed that he is the bread of life. The bread of life. That which is able to provide not just substance and sustenance to us in a physical way, but spiritually to meet the very needs of our soul. In other words, to put it very quickly and to summarize what we've learned together about why they get stirred up, Jesus Christ is more than a miracle worker, and this is some of the ways that the world looks at him today. He is more than a miracle worker. He is more than a moral man. He is more than a prophet. He is more than a teacher. He is more than just a historical figure. He is indeed the Son of God who left his glory above and came here on earth. More specifically, as you just read in your responsive reading out of Acts chapter 4, and particularly the last verse that we read together, he is the one and the only Savior sent by the Father. There is no other source of salvation for man. There is no religion. There is no church. There is no minister. There is no priest. There is no relative that can save anyone. And you cannot save yourself. It is only made possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has stirred them up. He then explained as he went on in the text what man cannot do. And that stirred him up even more. 
We saw as we went through the text, verse 44, and you can scan it, that man cannot come to Christ by his own initiative. We cannot come to Christ on our own, and I do believe that's the calling of God clearly in the context. Why? Because as we explained last week, man is totally depraved, and I tried to explain that in many different ways to you. Man's total being has been affected by sin, that which the world does not want to talk about today. The world hates that word sin, but in reality we hate it because we know it is true in our lives. And so we saw that our nature is contrary to God. According to Ephesians chapter 4, all natural men are spiritually dead. And if we're spiritually dead, we are unable to respond to God on our own, and thus it takes the drawing by the Father in verse 44 to awaken us to God. So anyone who is actually moving by way of seeking, if you will use that term, to God, or to turn toward God, it is because God is awakening the soul. And how does he do that? We saw that last week as we closed off verses 45 and verse 46. By the way, the concentration of our message will be verse 47, though we will cover the text through 59 by God's grace this morning. How does one who is in a dead state, how is one who is, as we have said, totally depraved, how is one who is just a simple natural person come indeed to understand the things of God and to come to know God? God must awaken the soul. He must awaken it. And how does he do it? He has chosen to do that by the preaching of the word of God. That is his choice. Why is that? I'd like you to turn to two quick texts this morning. We'll come right back to John. You know them well, but let's turn to them. Hebrews chapter 4. Because even as you have opportunity to witness, you have opportunity to share with people about Christ, don't ever forget that this is where the power is. The reason, well, is ultimately God's sovereign choice in using his word to draw people and to give them understanding. But according to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, for the word of God, the Bible... The Word of God is living. It is not a dead book. And if you think it's dead, I challenge you to read it. You will find how accurate and how active it is. And how it will bring conviction as well as hope, as well as joy to the person who reads it. The Word of God is living. It is active and sharper than any two-edged sword. What a vivid picture. Piercing, a two-edged sword, and piercing, not just through the skin, watch this. Piercing far as the division of the soul and spirits and both joints and marrow, and then watch this, nothing else can do this, is able to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You see, God uses the word of God because it's able, that is what is able to penetrate right to where we really live. Others cannot see what's going on inside. I cannot see what's going on inside of you right now. You cannot see what's going on inside of me. But God knows it. You know it. And God is able to take the word of God and to get right down to where we live. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, one other verse I'll share again, well known. You don't need to turn you can listen, but in verse 21 it says this. 
For since in the wisdom of God, now listen, the world through its wisdom, you can be the most intelligent person in this room, and you can study all your life and get five doctorates. And listen carefully. You will not, through that wisdom, come to know God. You won't do it. But so, through the wisdom of God, watch what he says. God was well pleased through the foolishness, and that's the way people think of a service. That's the way people think of people that teach the word of God. It's silly. It's foolish. But listen, it says God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, and listen to this, to save those who believe. God has not only chosen the way of salvation, that is by sending his son from heaven to come to earth and to die on a cross to satisfy the righteousness of God in meeting the penalty for sin and then raising him from the dead and ascending back into heaven. That's the love of God clearly expressed in his son. But he's also chose the method through which he would draw men, women, boys and girls to himself and that methodology is through the foolishness of preaching the Word of God because it is the Word of God that's able to penetrate to the very inner man and the thoughts and intents of the hearts. And God is able to, with the Holy Spirit, open up the understanding of men to awaken them to the gospel and to bring them to salvation. Now we come to verses 47 to 51 and 59, etc. What we will see in these verses to give you the a heads up as to where we're going, is Jesus points out what man must do. Listen, what man must do in order to be saved, in order to have life. You cannot escape this. In order to be forgiven. How can we be forgiven from sins? How can we have life? Is there life after death? And how can I obtain that eternal life? How can I be born again? Those terms, someone asked that uh, this week. How can a person be born again? John chapter 3 has the answers. How can a person be born from above? It is through this what we're going to look at today. Simply put to you right away, as you can see from the outline, it is by appropriating, and I'll expand on that, God's provision of salvation. God has provided these salvation. It must now be appropriated. And how? By having faith, by having belief, by having trust, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You will also see from the text that there's a danger, and then you'll see instruction given to us about what is, unfortunately, a very confused doctrine to some people here, this concept of eating and drinking the flesh in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's look at it, the concentration being on 47. First, the appropriation. Look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. This is how a person is saved. How? By appropriation. What does that mean? To appropriate means to simply give it to you out of a dictionary and different synonyms. It means to take possession of. It means to take to oneself, to take to me. It means to make use of. To make use of something is to appropriate. It means to seize upon that which I've seized upon. It means to apply. And I could go on for 15 more minutes. I hope we got the point. To appropriate means I need to take possession. 
The message has come from God, but it must be taken. It must be applied. And when he says, he who believes has eternal life, three things I want to emphasize to you that I think the text emphasizes. Number one, it's individual. Number two, it's by faith. And number three, and I'll deal with it, it's present and it's continuous. Number one, it's individual. Human responsibility and the sovereignty of God are everywhere taught in Scripture and cannot be avoided. It cannot. Human responsibility cannot be avoided. It's presented right here in this verse. Nor does it, and we need to understand this, nor does it negate the sovereignty of God. It's not a work of man, but it is absolutely presented as necessarily being done by man. It does not eliminate election at all, but it is presented very clearly. Individually, truly, truly, I say to you. It is individual. It is he, she, the one. And what that ought to point out to us right away is this. First of all, salvation is not automatic. What does that mean? It is not applied to everybody simply because Jesus Christ has been sacrificed on the cross of Calvary. There is no such thing as universal salvation. It is not a case where everybody has their own religious beliefs, we're going up different sides of the mountains, and we'll all get to the top someday. If you believe that, you've already got one foot in hell, and you will end up there if you die that way. It's not true. Why? Because God says that there's only one way. Jesus Christ, we will learn in John chapter 14, will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come unto the Father except it be through me. It is only through Jesus Christ. You say that's pretty narrow. That's right. We sang about it this morning. We saw it in, in the scriptures. It is the potter who determines what to make out of clay. It is God that has created the universe. It is he that determines the way of salvation. So number one, it's not automatic. It is not that because I've been born in the United States of America, I'm a Christian. You may use that title, but by the time we get to next week's message, you're going to see that there's a lot of people who call themselves disciples of Christ, and they are not believers. Also, when we look at this, because it's individual, it is not that someone else can do it for you. Some have the concept that well, my parents are religious, they knew Christ, thus I'm saved. No, parents, grandparents, children, religious leaders, no priest, no rabbi, no minister can bring you to salvation. He says very clearly, truly, truly, I say to you, it's individual. It's not someone else who can do it for you, nor, and this sometimes becomes a hang-up for people, nor is it what you can do for somebody else. Oh, how we wish we could. Oh, how Paul wished. He said, my heart's desire for Israel is what? That they might be, help me, saved. But he couldn't do it for them. He said, I wish that I could be accursed of God, that they could come to salvation. Because coming to salvation means you come to know the one true living God that you have your sins forgiven, you have the gift of eternal life, as you'll see in a few moments, and you will be in heaven forever with God. 
And his heart's desire was that he could do it for them, but he couldn't. Why? It's individual. It's individual. And our heart's desire may be for our children, for our parents, for our relatives to come to know Christ. But that's why, my friend, you need to share the Word of God because the Word of God can penetrate and that's the mechanism through which God will work to bring them to salvation. And don't ever give up on it. It must be personal. It must be seized upon, if you will. It must be applied by you. There is no one else that can have salvation for you. Every single person in this auditorium or outside of this auditorium you indeed must appropriate, you indeed must seize upon the truth of the Word of God and take it to yourself if you will ever be saved. Truly, truly, I say to you, say to you what? He who believes, it's the second aspect of the verse. It's faith. It's trust. It's belief. And you say, well, there's the trick. You know, this is the faith, the cop-out. Really? We all live by faith. You say, we do? Yeah. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Don't tell me, by the way. You had faith when you had that. You trusted whoever manufactured or produced that item that you drank or that you ate that it wasn't poisoned. The moment you started your car up, you trusted that that key was going to take all of those components, by the way, which are technically an explosion, and your car wasn't just going to blow up with you in it. You trusted in turning the key so you could get the car going. And you came here. You're trusting the pew to hold you up. Our life is built upon trust. Those who don't trust in God are trusting in themselves that they are the all-wise, all-knowing person with all the answers. And I know better than God. Really? You see, we all live by trust. But trust or belief here is dealing not just with intelligent information, although it does involve intelligence. We don't eliminate reason. We don't eliminate thinking about things. But trust here is not just mere belief in a bunch of facts. We need to understand what this is meant by trust and belief. And by the way, if you want an example, I won't turn there, but in Acts chapter 8 of your Bibles, you can mark that down. There was a sorcerer. You know, we're coming to Halloween time, witches and so forth, Salem, Massachusetts, witchcraft and so forth. There'll be plenty of it. When you think of the sorcery, think of that type of thing. And there was a person that come and said to believe on Jesus. But then as you go on and find out in the text, that person believed a lot of facts about Jesus, but never truly trusted in Jesus because when they saw how people were healed, what he did was turn around that sorcerer and say, hey, can I buy that from you? And the person was addressed by the apostles and said, listen, your money perish with you. That was someone that had believed intellectually, but it hadn't gone from here down into the heart. And so when we talk about belief, we talk about faith, what is it? It must involve the inner being. It must involve the heart. It must involve the conscience and a commitment to it by acting on it. That's what faith is. Faith is not just intelligence. We do have to gather the intelligence and the facts. But it penetrates into the inner man, and then we submit to it. We submit to that with our being, with our action. In this particular case, when the Lord's talking about believing 
on him. He's talking about our life, our future, our eternity. What? That we have faith to commit it to God and what he has done about it. What has he done? He showed us that all men are sinners and come short of the glory of God. He showed us that Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and life. And that salvation only comes through him. And we must, in order to be saved, believe. And that means have faith, not just intellectually, but committing our lives to it. You say, Pastor Dan, you're going beyond the scriptures. Really? Let me try to demonstrate it to you. I think we all know what an airplane is. I know of people who believe a lot about airplanes. I know people who believe airplanes can fly. I know people who believe that airplanes can take you from here to another part of the world. But I also know people who, while they believe that intelligently, will never, ever, ever get in an airplane. Why? They are scared to fly. What does that mean? They don't have faith in that airplane at all. It's good for somebody else, but no way will you get me in an airplane. And by the way, that's not true of me. I've flown in many airplanes. You see what I'm saying? If they really had faith in that, what are they, what are they doubting? They're doubting that they're going to live if they go in that airplane. Yeah. You say, well, that's a phobia. You do whatever you want with it, but the bottom line is, that's what I'm showing you with faith. True faith says, I don't even believe it can do it. I'll get in. I'll trust myself to it. Let me put it another way. Term we don't like to think about, but surgery. Yeah. I might go to a doctor, and a doctor, I look at a wall. I just was there last week, by the way, for my annual checkup. I'm not sure. I, th I think they found I have a heart, believe it or not. It did beat and so forth. But anyway, I went to my doctor, and, so, and on that wall was all of these plaques and where he graduated from, and I was looking at all of that stuff and so forth. And that should be in doctor's walls. We would want to go in and find out Mickey Mouse pictures in there. Um, but at any rate, and the doctor comes out, if the doctor came out to you and said, look, you gotta, I, I looked at all the test results, we have to have surgery. You can turn around and say, boy, this guy is smart, this guy knows his stuff, and so forth, uh, but forget it. No way. You're not cutting me open. Well, if I don't cut you open, you're going to die. Well, I can't go that far. You see, that's not faith. It takes a lot of faith to turn around and say, you know what? All I know is I visit you in an office. I see all these degrees. I've seen you run me through tests. I didn't grow up with you. I don't know who you are. I don't know what's going on. Now you say you want to go inside, cut me up, start taking pots out? Fine, go do it. Have to it. Have a good time. Wake me up when it's all over. That takes faith. You see? Maybe poor illustrations, but the point is when we talk about faith, too often we talk about a mere profession with the mouth. And you're going to see in this chapter, by the time we're done with it, that there were a lot of people who that's all they did, and they walked away from Christ when they found out what faith really was. And when they found out who he really was. Thus, the contents of what we believe is absolutely vital. You see, it's not just Jesus plus good works. I believe that Jesus existed, but then if I do enough good works, I can get to heaven. It's not Jesus plus religion. If I go to church or read my Bible, that's going to make me right with God. It's not Jesus uh, who is made up in man's image the way I think Jesus should be, some religious person. No. But it's to trust in the Jesus of the Bible. It's to put my faith in the Jesus of the Bible. Who is that? The sinless Son of God who came from heaven 
who was a substitutionary sacrifice. He died in my place. That has to be personally appropriated. He died in my place. He died for my sin and is able to forgive me of my sin and bring me to God. That's all that's involved in that. And I have to commit my life to it. You know, I preach over and over about this stuff and sometimes even stirs up trouble for myself, but I'm not afraid of that, by the way. You know why? Because I'm so afraid of so many people who have said a certain prayer, said a certain thing, but that has never gone beyond the intellectual. And I've shared with you many times, when I was in accounting, before I went into the ministry, I will never forget it. That's why I've shared it over and over. I was going out actually to a dinner, and a woman met me at the door. I was already saved and wanted to share a track with me, and I asked her if she was saved. And she over and over again said yes, and I said, how do you know? I prayed the prayer. What does that mean? I prayed the prayer. What assurance do you rest it on? I prayed the prayer. What did Jesus Christ do? All I know is I prayed the prayer. I had to witness to that woman. I was afraid that that woman had no concept of who Jesus Christ really was. We need to be careful. Faith is understanding who the Jesus of the Bible is because a lot of people who are believing on Jesus are believing on him as a lucky charm. They're not believing on him as the God that came to save, as the only means of salvation. Okay? We need to understand that. So it's faith. It's faith. It's believing in who Jesus Christ is. Why do you say all of that, Pastor Dan? Because when we believe, when we've truly trusted in Christ, we know these things. What? Because Scripture tells us. Listen. You are a new creation. You're changed. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When you've trusted in Christ, you're a new creation. When you've been trusting in Christ, and when you've trusted in Christ for salvation, you have now been bought with a price, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. You are not your own. Those people that are saying, I've got faith in Christ, but I've got my own life to live, catch you in heaven, Jesus, are not saved. You say, Pastor Dan, that's pretty bold. Stay with me for next week's message. As soon as he got down to those people who were calling themselves disciples, when they found out who Jesus really was, they walked away and had no more to do with him. And that's when he turns to his disciples and said, are you going to walk away too? So where are we going to go? You're the one who has eternal life. They saw the difference. He also tells us that such were some of you, what? Covetous, extortioners, adulterers. That's the life before salvation, not the one after. Doesn't mean you can't fall into those things from now, but it wasn't the pattern of life anymore. We are his workmanship when we truly come to faith in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. According to the book of Ephesians and Colossians, the new man has been put on. The old man has been put off. You see, when we have faith, so I say to you, it needs to be personally appropriated. What does? Faith, belief, and that means committed to Christ. That I've committed to my life to what he has done on my behalf. Thirdly, so I get to deal with it, is the last part of the verse. It says, when you've done that, when you have, have appropriated by faith, you've believed, you have eternal life. It is present and it's continuous. It's the third part of the exposition. First of all, it's a present active participle dealing with believe. 
Secondly, it's a present indicative verb when you're dealing with has eternal life. And what all of that should mean to you is this. Belief is not just today. And that's it. You know, people say, I've trusted in Christ. Why? I walked the aisle or I raised my hand. And they're living in the past. Well, where are you with Christ today? Well, I, you know, I don't read. I don't know of a baby that will survive in this world if they don't drink milk or have food or feed themselves or get fed. We need, if we are spiritually alive, we need food. It is not that. It's not just a past action, walking an aisle, raising a hand, saying a prayer. Too many are relying upon that. A true believer comes to faith and believes now, now listen to me, and will continue to believe. He may backslide, as we use that term loosely. He may fall into sin and will fall into sin. But he won't desert. He will not apostatize. I'll deal with that next week, Lord willing. He will not desert and have nothing to do with the things of Christ. Someone that wants nothing to do with the things of Christ, don't try to convince them that they were saved as a child. Convince them they need salvation, folks. You're doing an injustice to them. When you say to your children, when you were six years old, you prayed with mom and dad, and you've never seen any evidence from six years old to 35. And then when they're 35, you're trying to say, I know you were saved when you were six. Don't you remember that prayer? What you ought to be saying is maybe they didn't truly understand. Let's deal with salvation now to make sure that they come to salvation. Because a true believer is one just by the tense of that participle who will keep on believing. He will continue to believe. Hold that for next week. All to us, the verb has eternal life. It is present now. You get it now. You see, salvation is not something I wait till I die. And then after I die in the grave, I hope I find myself in heaven. If you're hoping for that, you're not going to find yourself in heaven. You know it now. Why? Because it's something that I do now. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ now. And I'm given the gift of eternal life now. That's why people say with boldness, I know I'm going to heaven. Why? I've trusted in Christ. It's not my merit. It's not my religion. It's not my church. It's not my pastor. It's not my relative. I personally have appropriated faith in Jesus Christ. I've believed on him who died on the cross for my sins personally, rose from the dead, and he says that he will give me eternal life. I have it now, and, it, and it's again present. I will forever have it. Talk about eternal security. Once you come to Jesus Christ, you have it forever. The danger is found in verse 52. I'm going to go to that, then I'll deal with verses 48 quickly to 59. But in 52 is the danger that this audience is facing right now. What is that? That when a natural man hears spiritual truth, it simply becomes offensive. He go, it goes against his nature. It doesn't seem right. He wants to look on his own merits. He wants to look to religion or elsewhere. And what happens, he starts arguing. In verse 52, there they are again. They've gone from quarreling, literally. The idea is they're now fighting with one another. They heard that Jesus came from heaven, that he's the bread. And rather than say, praise the Lord, here's an opportunity to have eternal life by appropriating and believing on him, they fight with one another. How can this possibly be? Well, let's take a look. Let's take a look. 
you'll see the confusion that's going on here. The instruction is in verses 48 to 51 and 53 to 59. Now, Pastor Dan, if you took three quarters of the message to deal with 47, how in the world are you going to finish 48 to 59? Well, I will, by God's grace, and I'll do it on time. Let me give you these comments. Number one, I don't think it takes a genius to understand that Jesus is using an analogy. He's using an analogy that we all understand, eating and drinking. Why? To communicate the spiritual truths that he's been trying to teach them. What truths? I started the message off with it. Who he is and what men must do. He is the bread of life. He's the one who offers life, and man must appropriate it. And to teach those truths, he uses the illustration of eating and drinking. Why do you think he uses eating and drinking? Let me keep you in the context. Number one, he had just fed 5,000. They understood the illustration because they just ate and drank. Number two, it was them, not Jesus. It was them that brought up the manna in the desert back with the people of Israel. They were the ones that talked about bread and how they were sustained by bread. So he uses an illustration that they brought up. And thirdly, I believe it's true, because Jesus proclaimed to them several times, as I've already pointed out, that he is the bread of life, verse 48. Now the problems are these. Let me give it to you. Number one, because people do not look at it as an analogy, and they take it literally, they say that he's teaching cannibalism. I don't think it takes a genius to understand that's not what he's teaching. Watch. Look at the context. Let me give it to you here. Stay with me. In verse 40, look at it. Go back to verse 40. For this is the will of my Father. What? Remember this? Everyone who beholds and believes may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up the last day. Watch the parallelism. Go to verse 54. He who eats, doesn't he say that? My flesh, and drinks my blood. That's the parallelism. Watch the same results. Has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. The conditions aren't any different. He's simply saying you've got to behold who I am, You've got to believe on who I am. And as he went on in the passage, and my Father will reveal that through the Word of God. And if you do that, you'll have eternal life, and I'll raise you up. And since they've brought up the eating and drinking, he says, to illustrate that to you, you must basically eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's not talking literally. It's an analogy, parallelism. You'll have eternal life, and you will be raised up the last day. The issues all through the passage has been, even in verse 47, to believe, to have faith, is to bring life. Drinking, literally, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, would make it, if that's what he meant, impossible for us to do today. Because he's not here. Secondly, it would have made it impossible for those before he came. Because he wasn't there. Thirdly, it would have been a violation of the scriptures to teach them to drink blood since it's a violation of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So the concept of literal cannibalism, which they were thinking, again, because of the natural man, is absolutely foolish. 
and is obvious from the passage. Again, look at verse 51. I'm the living bread. I came down from heaven. So eating the bread, that's the appropriation of it. You will live forever. The bread also I give. Watch them. There it is. There's a comparison. I give for the life of the world. And you can't escape that, folks. I give for the life of the world in my flesh. See, in my flesh. He offered his flesh in our place. He offered his flesh. And it's very clear. Secondly, what I must deal with is this. It is not communion. Now, those of you that know me well, you know I grew up as a Roman Catholic. And the Roman Catholic Catholics go to this passage as a basis for communion. And when the service goes on, they believe in the transubstantiation in which the body, the, the, the communion, bread and wine, actually change right into the literal body and blood of Christ. And they use this text. That's not so. Let me make it simple for you. How do you know, Pastor Dan? Number one... We're in John chapter 6. Right. What does that mean? He hasn't even instituted the communion service yet. That happens at the end of his ministry. He's talking to them about eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ and hasn't even approached communion. So to go back before that is out of line. Secondly, nowhere in the scriptures is salvation taught by partaking of communion. We do it once a month here, and I clearly emphasize to you, as taught in the Scripture, as is on the table in front of me, that this is to be done how? In remembrance of me. Communion is the outward reminder of what Christ has done in shedding his blood and giving his body. And so we partake of the bread, and we partake of the wine, because it reminds us of the shed blood and of the body of Christ. It is not providing salvation. There's people that can come to this church and take communion every month and end up in hell. Because unless you've appropriated by faith salvation to your own life, even that example and reminder is really nothing to you. Third, something to chew on for those of you that have it in front of you. In verse 53... The eating and drinking are in the aorist tense. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of the blood, you have no life in yourselves. And I think that's dealing with the act. And I know it goes on to talk about the flesh and drinking and so forth as it goes on. But I think verse 53 is very significant. Because at the time of salvation, the idea is just appropriation. I don't keep drinking of the blood. I don't keep, if you will, eating the Lord Jesus Christ, which again, it would be impossible. So it's not dealing with communion. It's not dealing with cannibalism. The explanation is this. Jesus came down from heaven. He offered his flesh, verse 51, to give life so that the world could have life. Verse 47, verse 50, again, look at it. Came down out of heaven so that one may eat and not die. You see, it's not a physical eating. It's an appropriation of taking all that Christ's death represented. You must partake. You must eat. You must drink. And in verse 54, that's what he brings up. That's why I brought you back to verse 40. It's beholding who the Son of God is, and it is believing on him. And the result is 
you have eternal life. You live and will be raised from the dead. So it's not a matter of taking physically. It's the body of the Lord Jesus Christ represents the living bread who was offered in the cross of Calvary. And he shed his blood. Why? That is the price of redemption. That is why for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth is the appropriation again. Should not perish. God's not pleased to send people to hell. All men on their own would end up there. Any person who just follows religion will end up there. But the person who comes to Christ and realizes, God, I'm a sinner. I can't. Every time I think, every time in the course of my day I do things, I sin. I can't save myself. No church can save. No religion can save. None. Fellowship Bible Church can't save anyone. But Jesus Christ, your provision from heaven, that bread of life, and the idea of eating and drinking is when we eat and drink, it becomes a part of our life. We consume it. It absorbs right into the body. And we, we take the Lord Jesus Christ in, not just intellectually, but we take him in for all that he is. We're given eternal life, forgiveness of sins. And indeed, God will raise us up the last day and we will be with him forever. Look at the way verse 58 closes. This is the bread that came down from heaven. You see, it's not as the fathers ate and died. They ate physical bread. But he who eats this bread, that is consumes, not cannibalism, not communion, but the one who beholds and believes everything that's been taught all the way through. That person, verse 56, abides in me. And I remain in him. And he's truly a child of God. He will live forever. Every person in this world has been designed with a soul and a spirit and a de designed for eternity. Some will end up in hell. The world does not want to hear that message. In fact, I'll tell you this, on the authority of the word of God, most will be in hell. Why? Because narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. But many are led to destruction. What's the scripture say? What's that narrow way? You read it in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that's because God the Father was satisfied with the sacrifice of his Son on our behalf to give forgiveness of sins. I close with this. We are all sinners. We are all blind to spiritual things by our own nature. God's provision is Jesus Christ, the perfect, acceptable sacrifice to God. It is God that must open up the heart, for man will never come to it on his own. It is God that uses the word of God in verses like these to draw people to himself. It is God that provides even the faith but the uh, salvation must be appropriated. You must appropriate it yourself. Someone else cannot do that for you. And the result is when you trust in Christ, forgiveness of sins, and the gift of eternal life. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, you have nothing to boast of. I have nothing to boast of, but everything to praise God for because of the gift of salvation. 
But am I living? Am I abiding with Christ the way I should be? Has it absorbed all of my life, my thinking and my actions, so I realize I've been bought with a price? I'm not my own, and I'm living for Christ. I'm walking according to the vocation to which I've been called. For those of you who have not come to Christ, I appeal to you. As Paul's heart went out to the nation of Israel, my heart goes out to you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Trust, believe on Christ, the bread of life, and he will give you life eternal. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I thank you for the patience of the Lord Jesus Christ with these men, religious leaders at yet, who were totally confused even as you presented yourself as the bread of life to them. Even as you reminded them how patient you were with them because no man could come unto the Father except, come unto you except the Father draw them. Father, we know that you use the word of God to draw men and women, boys and girls, unto Christ. And Father, this is eternity that we're talking about here. This is not just 70 years, 90 years. We're not dealing with just intellectual things. We're dealing with our lives. You know the heart and mind of everyone in this room. All men are sinners and have come short of the glory of God. That's not the issue. Coming down from heaven was Jesus Christ, satisfying your righteousness and holiness, dying on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And Father, through belief, <clears throat> through faith in him, that resurrected Savior, you offer eternal life. Open up the hearts of men and women here that they might come to trust in Christ and right there in the pew be given eternal life. For those of us that know you, help us, Father, to remember the cost, to remember the price paid, to remember who we are, and to live abiding in Christ for the glory of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.